Welcome to the Product Podcast, brought to you by Product School, the podcast where you get fresh insight from leaders at top tech companies and startups. Remember, you can learn product management in person at our 15 campuses worldwide or study with us online. Visit productschool.com to learn more about our courses. You can also hang out with the leaders from these podcasts at our hundreds of annual events and catch us at ProductCon, the world's largest PM conference that takes place every year across the United States and in London. Today I want to I want to talk about something that I have found very valuable uh, in my career so far. Uh, I have used a lot of these frameworks and a lot of these things to decide on how to build my product and how to sort of strategize on how um, things should be taken to market and other aspects of it. So let's start with the first uh, sort of case study that I want to cover. Um, the year is 2012. The company is Reliance Geo. So uh, let, me, let me set some context on, on the market and company first. So Reliance Geo is a internet company in India. Um, in 2012, they got the license for, uh, for operating 4G services throughout India. Uh, India did not have 4G services at that time. And so Geo was really looking to make a big splash in this market. A, a little bit about the market itself. So uh, India at that time, despite having 1.2 billion people, only had 137 million internet users. So penetration was pretty low, uh, about 11%. It was growing pretty quick, so 26% year-on-year growth, uh, but still sort of a ways to go. In terms of smartphone penetration, that was even lower. So only 67 million smartphone uh, users in India at that time, uh, about 6% of total telecom users had smartphones at the time. So. So here's, here's my first question uh, based on all of that. Uh, what kind of characteristics do you guys think uh, would be the best sort of selling points for a 4G internet product uh, in this market and context? Low cost smartphones. Okay, yeah. Price. Price, okay. What else? If you think of like 4G internet, what, what comes to mind first? Video. Speed, video, yeah, exactly. So, so that's, that's pretty much the, the sort of lines that we were going under, uh, you know, fi faster speeds, uh, how do we get this to more people, lower latency, uh, connectivity, those kinds of things. Um, in terms of thinking of competitors, who, who do you think our main competitors would be in this kind of market? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, 2G and 3G uh, service providers, yeah. Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's kind of how we were thinking about our market and competitors. Uh, at the time, this is, this is the list of uh, telecom players in India at the time. Um, how, do, how would you segment the, this, this market in terms of customers? Like, how would you decide uh, what kind of customers to go for? Uh, and, and you know, like what kind of products to build for customer segments, etc. So, yeah. B to B first, right, or B to E. Okay. Yeah. And so you're saying, basically, based on the industry or based on 
if it's a B2B versus B2C, yeah, okay. Education, you know, that's the first people who might get for you, right? Yeah, but uh, I, I'm sort of trying to get to a dimension uh, or a level over this. Like, what are the dimensions? Age is one thing, yeah. Yeah, urban rural, like income levels, those kinds of things. So, yeah, all of those are the, are the sort of demographic characteristics that we were looking at. Uh, this is where we, we sort of hit, hit some uh, roadblocks. So we figured out all of this was wrong. Uh, we figured that, and this was, it's not a novel concept if you, when you look back on it, but sort of thinking forward, it's always something that you miss and don't think about, which is that people don't want a drill because they want the drill. They want the drill because they want the hole, right? People want the hole, they don't want the drill. So in the same way for us, what we realized is people don't want internet. They want stuff that they can do with that internet, right? Smartphone penetration was only 60 million people. What are we gonna do by giving people 4G internet if they don't have smartphones? if they don't have content, if they, if they don't have things to use that uh, 4G internet for. So, so that's what we started doing, was instead of, instead of segmenting our customers by demogra demographics or products and services, we moved to this jobs to be done kind of framework uh, and figuring out what is the job that these customers need to get done that they want to hire geo and internet for. Um, we, we started segmenting people in terms of, you know, first-time users, uh, people who want to buy the smartphone for this first time, people who love watching uh, TV and they maybe want to get more of the content side of things, people who want the connectivity, they want like uh, um, things like uh, connecting to uh, their friends and family, having uh, high-speed video uh, calling, etc. So, so that's when we, start, we shifted our mindset to thinking about how do we move away from the characteristics of internet itself, but we start talking about what is the actual jobs to be done that people would hire Geo for. Um, and that's, that's what I talked about. So, so we talked about content, we talked about uh, video services, we talked about uh, payment solutions, uh, shopping, uh, devices, uh, all of those things. Um, and this is what we ended up launching and sort of actually building. So in 2014, we launched a smartphone, which was the cheapest smartphone in the world. Uh, this, this smartphone, I think, was about $70 uh, unlocked, contract-free. Uh, it, it was the way to sort of build our market, because our market wasn't the 1.2 billion people in India. It was the people who have smartphones and an ability to consume 4G internet. So, so that's what we did. We only launched the, the phone. We didn't even launch 4G services at this point. Uh, two years later is when we launched a slew of applications, content, services, all of these things that were built on top of this new 4G world, saying, if here's all this great stuff, if you wanna take advantage of all of this stuff, the 4G is sort of the bare bones infrastructure which you need to get to these products and these jobs. Uh, to be done. So, so just to close out this case, uh, Geo ended up launching the telecom services in 2016. It was the fastest telecom launch success in the world. Uh, we got 100 million customers in the first 180 days of launch. Uh, I think 
the AGM was like last week and they, they're at 340 million now. So they're the second biggest telecom provider in the world today. Um, that's, the, that's the internet usage. That, so, so right when Geo launched, it went up 9x in, in a matter of you know, six months. So the demand was there. People were willing to use the, were willing to use the bandwidth as long as you gave them something to do with that bandwidth. Uh, you know, before that, people didn't have anything to do with with the content and uh, with the bat, excuse me, with the bandwidth that was out there. So, so that's like the big shift that we saw uh, in the market. Um, and then, obviously, like below, uh, like behind all of this was the content itself. So we saw not just the geo apps, but uh, even competing content providers uh, see you know big spikes in their usage and the way that. Uh, they were penetrating the market. Cool. So, switching gears a little bit, uh, let's go back now to 2008. There's a small startup, Airbed and Breakfast, uh, and um, le let's figure out what they're trying to do. So, Airbed and Breakfast, essentially, the job to be done here is connecting travelers looking for accommodation with hosts who have spare rooms, spare beds, spare space uh, to host, uh, uh, host people. Uh, and they want to monetize this, right? So this is, this is what the market looked like. Um, and you know, there, were, there was sort of a, a slew of market segments from, from very economy and uh, cheaper options to high end, you know, the Hyatt's and, and uh, Marriott's, et cetera, uh, at this moment. So, now my question to everyone is, uh, show of hands, um, you know, what part of this segment would you want to go with, uh, would you want to target with air, bed and breakfast? So how many people would go for the economy uh, part of it? Okay, so I'm seeing about 20, 30%. Uh, how many would go for like the mid market? Okay, another 20, 30%. Uh, how many would go for the upper market? Okay, maybe 10%. Uh, and how many would go, you know, like, let, let's take on the luxury ones. Rest, 20%. Okay. Um, just, just some thoughts, like, uh, what, what did you pick? Like, wh which market would you go for? Uh, Mid-market. Okay, and just talk me through your reasoning there. I guess it's a, I am assuming a lot of things, but my assumptions are here users looking for value versus a, you know, the, the, what the value is going to provide. So mm -hmm. that's a market that could be easiest to target where I'm going to see majority of my users go in and hopefully they will transition into something like what I'm offering. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Anyone who chose like a higher luxury or, or one before like, uh, below luxury? Yes? No? Maybe? Yeah. Um, I guess with that, it's like your I'm thinking like you want people that want to like have more like obviously you're in a house, not a hotel, so you have like there's some level of luxury that's like having it not be just like another hotel room. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Okay. And how do you think uh, the Hyatt and the Marriott would sort of counter that if you're going right after their uh, target customers? Over there, it's like, well, we have people waiting on you. We have yeah. service. You're not going to get. Yeah. So, so they have like all of these services. They have 
you know, like concierges, they have, um, like they'll do all their, all your bookings, room service, all of these things. Uh, and you're selling a bed in someone's house. Uh, how do you think that that's going to go? It's, it's hard, right? Uh, so, so you, so what that means is you need to start putting in parameters saying, if you want to host on air bed and breakfast, you need to start providing some of these, some of these services, some of these options. That's the only way to compete directly with them on the product itself. Um, I, I think we all know sort of where Airbnb ended up going. So Airbnb went like very economy, you know, let's target those. Let, let's have the cheapest option out there. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about what the strategy behind that was. So have people here heard about disruptive innovation? Yes. So uh, the, there's, there's tons of books out there on this. I'm not going to try to co uh, cover the entire framework in like five minutes, but the, the parts that apply to the Airbnb and breakfast or Airbnb case here is that they really went for the bottom part of the market. They knew that they were not going to be able to compete with the existing competitors on the product itself. The product that they were offering was lesser and subclass to those. So what they said is, we're going to offer something that's much cheaper, but it doesn't have all the frills. So for people who aren't looking for all the frills, someone who is going uh, you know, backpacking around Europe, they don't care about a concierge. They don't care about room service. They just want the cheapest thing possible. So we're going to go after those people. And as we get to the, as we sort of meet their demands, we're going to go higher and higher and higher. The, the cool thing about this strategy is that what do you think Hyatt said when, uh, when Airbnb was taking all the backpackers? They, they didn't care. They, they're just like, yeah, let them have that. Those are probably our worst, worst customers anyways. They're not looking at Hyatt's and they're not looking at Marriott's anyways. So yeah, let, the, let them have that. We don't care. What, what happens after they go you know, one step further, Airbnb starts offering uh, complete houses. Like it's still, it's still not our target market. So by the time Airbnb reaches your market, they have already owned and taken over the whole market. So, so it's a disruption by going for the low cost option and going after the bottom end of the market. So that's the beauty of this strategy is by figuring out a way to market your product to the bottom end of a market and meeting uh, the demand of the customers who are being overserved by the current competitors or who aren't being served at all by the current competitors, you can sort of take those customers and you can take that market without the current competition even caring. And by the time they look up and realize what's happened, uh, you've, you've already gotten the whole market. Um, Airbnb obviously has been doing really well. So it's about, you know, 2012, 2013, probably Hyatt and, and Marriott started recognizing, okay, who is this Airbnb? Let, let's sort of try to think of a strategy, but let's not care too much. Let, let's, let's worry about the four seasons down the road. Um, Airbnb has actually eaten the market from the bottom up uh, without Hyatt and all of these luxury hotels even realizing. Um, I don't think even today Hyatt competes with the Airbnb. They are still different markets uh, and target customers, but there's definitely conversations going on at the Hyatt 
about what do we do about Airbnb, they're going to kill us in a few years, right? So the question is uh, if that's possible. And what the theory says is that uh, if you go for a disruptive innovation, the, inc the newcomer always beats uh, and always wins the market. So, so we'll see where that goes. Um, I just wanted to contrast this with Uber, for example. So a lot of people talk about Uber being disruptive, being this, uh, you know, like great thing. Uber has been great, but just from looking at this framework, uh, what do you guys think? Was it, was it disruptive or not? Yeah, so so disruption is always bottom up. So the theory of disruption says that to be a disruptive innovation, you have to go after the bottom end of the market or a market that doesn't exist, uh, and then work your way up that way. Uber, from from this theory's terminology, Uber was not a disruptive innovation. They were going after uh, the existing market and the existing players excuse me, players, by making it easier based on the app and based on all of these other factors. Uh, but in the strict sense of this, it was not a disruptive innovation. Now, in the future, if we talk about uh, sort of ownership of cars, I think Uber is disruptive to car the car ownership market because you're going after the people who maybe aren't going to buy a car anyways to begin with, and then you slowly work your way up where today in San Francisco, it probably makes sense to have a budget for Uber rather than buying a car, you know? So, so that's how it's disrupting uh, that market. So what's the name of the strategy that Uber used? What is it, what is it called? It, it doesn't fit in this framework. So, so in this framework, anything that adds on to an existing product and just makes an existing product better is called a sustaining innovation. So, so if we go back to this, uh, if we look at the incumbents, they are always increasing their product performance by doing sustaining innovations. And uh, that's great, but, but then you run the risk of someone coming and disrupting you. Because every sustain, sustaining innovation, while it increases product performance, is, it also increases product uh, cost and product price. So you're running, running the risk where you're, you are over-serving some part of the market, where someone's like, I don't care about this new shiny thing. Just give me the old stuff at a cheaper cost. But companies can't do that, obviously. It's an interesting distinction that you're making, and I'd be curious to parse it a little yeah. bit. Um, so it seems like the language sustaining suggests that you, you're talking about an incumbent who's adding services to make the product better. Mm -hmm. But Uber doesn't fit that traditional model either, yeah. since it came out of nowhere, and it's not using taxis and elevating their game. Mm -hmm. It's actually taking... Um, you know, gig, the gig economy plus the cars they own, and then you know later adding leasing. Yeah, so I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not like putting Uber down. Uber like had a great strategy. It, it just didn't fit this. Yeah, so you know, in I'm terms, of, yeah, yeah. So in terms of, so the sustaining innovation doesn't have to be incumbents. It can be newcomers as well. Okay. The the way that sustaining is defined is it goes after existing customers by making an existing product better. A disruptive innovation is one that goes after customers who are over or are outpriced by existing products. So they, do, they can't afford existing products and they want something that's worse than the existing product. So Airbnb, for example, they 
you know, going after the backpackers. They didn't want a hotel. They wanted something that's cheap. They, you know, they, they go after the, the motels and those things. So yeah, that that's the distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Okay. Yeah. How much of the strategy do you think was determined by the 2008 recession and like how did that drive the bottom-up approach? Uh, I think that's, that was definitely an important factor. Uh, but I think when, when you're sort of in the recession and, and thinking about these things, it's hard to take like a macro view of, of uh, these aspects. The important thing is that Airbnb could have said, we have this cool technology, we, we can connect people using the internet. I mean, you know, the iPhone was launched in 2007, so smartphones were new. They could have said, let's use this to connect high-end hotels with high-end customers. So they could have used the same technology to be a sustaining uh, innovation, but they made a conscious choice to say, let's not go after the, the high-margin customers, let's go after the low-margin customers, because we know we will, that'll help us to win in the long term. Uh, so that's always the conflict for existing companies, is saying, do I build stuff for the customers who I don't care about, or do I keep improving stuff for the customers who are paying me a lot of money uh, and 99% of the time, it's, it's the right answer to go after sustaining stuff and keep improving your product. But it's those 1% those times where uh, someone comes in and disrupts you. So third case study. Um, let's look at, look at sort of the electric scooter market and Lyft. Uh, this is a bit more recent, uh, 2008, uh, a bit more relatable to people uh, let's look at the San Francisco market. So in San Francisco, the electric scooter market, uh, you know, in 2008 was seen as the next big market. Uh, it's the next big thing for mobility. Uh, you know, everyone wants to get into this market uh, and everyone's trying to figure out how to get into this market. A bunch of companies have just thrown electric scooters onto the roads and said, hey, let's see what happens. Uh, and then San Francisco bans all of them. So San Francisco says, any electric scooter that we see on the road, you're gonna be banned $1,000 per day. Uh, so overnight, all the electric scooters are gone. But San Francisco also says that, hey, we now have this application process. Uh, you, you have a way of getting permits. So they wanted to, they, they, they saw what Uber did uh, 10 years back by just breaking all the laws and they're like, Let, let's stop this before this gets to that. Um, so now we are Lyft and we're trying to figure out what is our strategy going to be? How do we, how do we really play in this market? Uh, and we have this company uh, that is um, a, a sort of the biggest uh, bike company in the US. Uh, we're talking about Motivate. So we, we're trying to decide should we acquire Motivate or not? And this is again in the June uh, sort of time frame. Um, so if we look at the decision tree, you can either acquire them or not. The, what can happen is if we acquire them and we apply for the license, we get the license, that's great. You can sort of put a value to that. Uh, and then if we've acquired them and then we don't get the license, that's bad. So you can put sort of a negative value to that. Maybe it's the $250 million. Maybe it's more because you've also spent some, uh, a bunch of lift resources and time on that. Uh, if we don't acquire Motivate uh, and Uber gets a license in San Francisco, that's bad for us. So we can, we can put like a competitive 
uh, value on that and figure out you know what what does that mean for our business and then if uber doesn't get the license uh, well it's kind of not that bad but we can still still put some value to that so in this decision tree what we can do is put a value on each of these outcomes uh, and then put a probability on each of these happening and then you know arrive at what's the best strategy to to do today should we acquire this company or not uh, knowing the probabilities and knowing the events uh, that could happen. So in July, Lyft decided to, to acquire Motivate. Um, you know, it was a very big acquisition. They were definitely s signaling that they are going to play uh, big in this market. Uh, and then in August, the results come out of the, from the city of San Francisco and Lyft has not got the license. So we've now acquired this $250 million company, but we haven't got the license to operate in San Francisco, which is currently the biggest market and the biggest uh, competitive uh, space for the electric scooter market. Uh, so what, what went wrong? What do you guys think? So the uh, the rules stipulated that you have to have an existing uh, business in in that if you want to apply for it. Plus, they wanted to use Motivate's resources and skills to uh, actually decide on getting the license. A lot of these applications were 80 pages, 100 pages long. Uh, and plus, if if the results come out, uh, the price of Motivate is going to go up. So th those are those are the factors. Yeah. I think they didn't really think about the risk part. The uh, sorry, which part? Uh, the risk of not getting the, the risk. risk. Okay. They, they probably undertake that part. And okay. So I think that's probably the reason, but they didn't really make it. Okay, so maybe maybe they got the probabilities wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or the values. Yeah. Um, I think there's um, a time horizon issue here that that's not the scope of your rendering so far. That's super important. Yeah. Right, um, and also geographical mm -hmm. dimension. So if you think about all of the other metropolitan areas, or even the long tail of all of the scooter markets that yeah. don't meet that you know top tier requirement, there's a huge market there, yeah. right? So um, if scooters are going to be a craze, even if they get regulated, if they figure out how to play the game and they make a good business, they're going to make a money there. Yeah. So so the argument is it's a long term game. Even if we can't play in San Francisco, we can play elsewhere. Uh, you know, we can we can sort of gain market share there. Uh, I think the counter there is at that time, uh, you know, setting ourselves back about a year. San Francisco was the market. And a lot of these players felt that once you win San Francisco or whoever wins San Francisco, they're the ones who are going to dominate this market in the U.S. Because now you, you know, uh, you know, how to build these scooters, how... Uh, what the data is, you have all of this information, which uh, others don't. So it becomes very hard to catch up uh, otherwise. But yeah, the, 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 right. it's there's a more long term. There's the fast follower argument, and yeah. there's been plenty of big tech companies. Yeah, you forward. could do that. Yeah. The, the board of supervisors have a long memory, and they remember what Lyft and Uber did you know, many years back. And mm -hmm. this is like the punishment for their behavior back 10 years. You're talking about the San Francisco? Yeah, uh, board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, they're petty. I mean, they ban like plastic straws and yeah. cafeterias and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. So makes sense. Like
so the company Motivate, uh, their biggest market was New York. So they they do all like the Ford or now you see the Lyft bikes everywhere. So that was Motivate. Um, but they weren't big in the electric scooter market because it didn't exist at the time. They were big in the uh, bike market and, and New York was their biggest uh, market. Were there any bike companies in San Francisco that they could have bought? Yeah, so could have instead you know, buy someone local, why buy someone uh, based in New York who doesn't have um, uh, knowledge of this market, etc. Yeah, makes sense. So I'm going to get to, get to, this is like a poker principle. Uh, and this is, this is a common trap that a lot of, anyone, any poker players here? Yeah, few. So you guys will know, if you lose a hand, that does not mean you played the hand wrong. Uh, it's called resulting when you decide, when you assess the value of your decision based on the outcome. And that's usually a bad thing to do because there might be factors outside of your control which decide what the outcome is. Uh, and that does not always reflect on your decision. Uh, I think like all fair points that you can do a bunch of things before making the decision to make sure you have the probabilities right, make sure you're looking at the right uh, um, companies to acquire, making sure that you're looking at the values of each outcome correctly. All of these things are, are valid, uh, and those are definitely things that you should do. But beyond a point, there's a certain amount of unknown risk or sort of un, uh, uh, or probab uh, probable events that you cannot overcome. So beyond a point, you have to accept that things, some things are known risks. And if the worst case happens, that does not mean that you made a bad decision looking back. Yeah. Why was uh, Skip and Scoop given the licenses? Like, what, they, they, they were probably not new, uh, well, they were not, yeah, they were not new, or they, they were not here for a long time. So yeah. it sort of makes sense to give the licenses to people who are known and mm -hmm. Uber and Lyft. So why was it given to them? I think it goes back to, they just pissed off the city 10 years back. So, so the city, city was just like, we're not having this Uber Lyft stuff anymore. Let's give it to some new people uh, and see if they do it well. Uh, but yeah. So yeah. part of the application process, they didn't lay out what the rules were? Or... So it was an application. I think, I don't know exactly what they had laid out as the criteria. Uh, but they essentially said, we're going to give out, uh, I don't even think they said how many licenses, licenses they're going to give out. Uh, I think 11 or 12 companies applied and only two got it. So, so they did not say that they're going to only accept two or what the, those things were. So those were a little bit of unknown unknowns where you cannot accurately assess the probabilities. And even if you could, you know, probabilities are probabilities. So something that's even a 1% chance could happen. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's important to not look back and say, oh, that was bad because this ended up happening. Uh, it, it doesn't always work like that because you're going from a, uh, a not a single point future, you're going from multiple possible futures to one actual future. And you have to play the strategy based on all the possible outcomes uh, without knowing actually what's going to happen. And then one of those things happens, 
uh, as long as you did not, you know, even think about that as a probability or you did not even think about that as something that could happen, as long as you have thought through everything at the time that you made the decision, uh, you know, that, that's your decision. You, should, you shouldn't sort of question yourself. What are the factors you use to come up with the probabilities that an event is likely to occur? Yeah, so there's a bunch of ways. A lot of companies hire McKinsey for that. So, you know, get, get some consultants, get some people who have market knowledge, uh, acquire a company that's in the market already so they know the data. Uh, you can use some data that you have, customer insights. Uh, so those are all, I think, primary sources and secondary sources of data and information that you should gather before making the decision. Um, so, so, yeah, I think those are well, some... What about it, like a startup? Yeah. Uh, you know, a small startup that doesn't have the resources to hire yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of secondary data out there. There's a bunch of uh, companies that publish their data. Uh, there's a bunch of, you know, like census type of information that's out there that's done by cities, that's done by businesses and given out as information. Uh, and then that's also where VCs come in. So the one of the, other than the money, uh, one of the big reasons why people go to good VCs is because they have the people and the skills and the knowledge of a sort of industry and and of how something works, uh, and that's what you want to work off of and and leverage uh, with a good VC. Would you recommend putting this through something like a SWOT framework just to see if it all really makes sense? Yeah. Like, you know, like you said, a, a startup is not going to have all the resources. Yeah. So would you recommend like somebody from product or who is making the decision look at the SWOT framework, see if it all this really makes sense or not? Yeah. The, there's a bunch of things that we could have done. Uh, I think the point here was the decision tree wasn't the best necessarily. Uh, the point was that whatever you do, once you make a decision, uh, as long as you've made a conscious decision, uh, don't sort of question that just because something else happened. Yeah. These are the stone cold nuts, man. Yeah. But I mean, they, the they, picture, the picture should be a deuces attempt. They lose. They lose a lot of times. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. <laughs> well, like when that, when yeah. you have aces and you go all in, that's always when they lose. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that, that's that's pretty much what I wanted to cover. So, just to kind of wrap up, uh, a lot of the sources for uh, this information and things that I have uh, found valuable uh, in the past, um, the Innovator Solution. This is a great book by Clay Christensen. The Jobs to Be Done Framework is in this book. The Disruptive Innovation Framework is in this book, as well as a bunch of other frameworks. I think this book is very dense in frameworks and it's very good. It's very uh, sort of practical and thinks about innovation from a very different lens. Uh, so I highly recommend that book. Uh, the second one is Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. Uh, she's actually a big poker player and she talks a lot about poker and how that translates to business strategies. Uh, resulting was, was one of those. Uh, other things are things that VCs do in terms of place a lot of bets, place bets in multiple things, don't go all in. Uh, and those are sort of strategies that she has found helpful in business. Uh, and yeah, then there's a bunch of other books and resources. Uh, Stratechery is uh, a very valuable newsletter that I read every day and I found very valuable. Uh, ben Thompson, he looks at the intersection of technology and strategy. So he 
he doesn't just report on the news, but he looks at what is the underlying strategy of things that are happening in tech uh, every day. Uh, but yeah, that, that's all I had. What's that guy's name again? Ben Thompson. Ben Thompson. Yeah. Stratechery is the name of the website and newsletter. It's a mix of strategy and technology. Uh, I, I don't think he'd realized how hard that is to say. You know. Thank you for listening to the Product Podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. For more product insights, head over to productschool.com.